Good morning, Epiphany, and good morning. Truly, that's our heart's cry this morning, that we are dependent on the Lord Jesus. We need him every day, every minute, and every hour, and we do thank him for bestowing his grace upon us so richly in his son, Jesus. So I bring you greetings, as Pastor Kurt said, from Epiphany Fellowship of Camden. Grateful to be here. Uh, all of my good friends, good to see Pastor Nyron here. We could have just had the benediction after Pastor Nyron preached, you know, Psalm 51. I said, we should just, I said, I really don't need to be up here today if Pastor Nyron is going to do that. And my good friend, Pastor Kurt, we have known each other since we were five. But see, the difference is I, I knew my hair was falling out, so I got rid of it early. <laughs> Pastor Kurt, uh, he, he, he held on. He held on. He held on a little long, you know what I'm saying, but I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I'm grateful for him, uh, Jesus, and my clock is ticking. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray, and then we're going to get into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the abundance of your goodness and mercy shown to us so richly in your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will be with us right now. Lord, I pray that you will sit me down. Um, Ernest Grant please the fifth, but I pray that uh, the Holy Ghost will testify on behalf of your son. So, Lord, we need you today. Lord, there are some people who come in here whose hearts are burdened, whose minds are weary, whose souls are vexed by what's transpired in the week, Lord, and they need an encouraging word from you. Lord, I pray that you will send it, Lord. So, Lord, we pray. We thank you for this. In the na mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And all the people of God that agree with that say, amen. I'm going to be in James, the fifth chapter. Uh, today, James, the fifth chapter. So you can grab your iPhones or any off-brand devices that you may have that are not iPhones. Oh, did I say that? I meant that was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was in my mind. I'm sorry. That was a glitch. That was a glitch. Just act like you didn't hear that. Act like you didn't hear that. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in verse number seven. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth and is patient with it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you may not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name, who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessing those who have endured. You have heard of the endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. There ends the reading of God's word. I was in uh, Baltimore visiting a friend of mine recently. Uh, and he took me to a, a, a local coffee shop that evidently was very popular with the locals. And as I walked to the counter to order my customary iced tea, you know, I mean iced coffee with no ice, all black, uh, before I, I could place my order, he, he tapped me on my shoulder. He was like, yo, you always order the same thing. Why don't you try something new? I said, all right, bro, what, what, what do you want me to get? He said, try this thing called cold brew. Anybody ever had cold brew for coffee? A few of y'all? Six of y'all? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, once I had the cold brew coffee, I know it was never any going back. 
It, 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 was, it was just, I, I just knew. So, so what I did was I did some research on how to make it at home so I don't have to pay Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, $78 in the kidney to get me a cup. So I, I found out that you, you grind up coffee grounds and you put them in room temperature water and then you let them steep for 18 to 24 hours. It's a crazy process. Then you, you're using a strainer, a cheese strainer, whatever it is, you pour it through the container and then you're left with this smooth, rich cup of coffee that has 65% less acidity and has more caffeine. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I figured that I'd get an amen on that. See, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So, so, so but, but the most important ingredient isn't necessarily the quality of the coffee bean. It's not necessarily the strainer, the thing that you filter the grounds through. It, it, it's not even the type of water that you use, whether you use spring or filter. No, the most important ingredient to making cold brew is the same one that James mentions in this passage this morning as being integral to the Christian life, and it's patience. It's patience. Patience is the Achilles heel of our selfie-driven social media culture. Because we're, we're, we're used to accessing information at, at, the wire, at our wireless devices in our hands. It's difficult for us to wait on anything. Think about it. You hate traffic because you have to wait. You hate long lines at the store, so you rather order the groceries online. You hate slow internet connections, even though some of us grew up on dial-up. We grew up, we too good, we bougie now. And most importantly, many of us hate those 30 second ads in between our YouTube video. When you're trying to watch your work, listen to your worship in the morning with the cord in the car. No, okay, okay, okay. We, we, why, why is this? It's because we are conditioned to be impatient. We have been groomed in this age to idolize convenience and eschew patience because pa patience impedes our personal comfort. Yeah. Say that again. We, we idolize convenience. But we eschew patience because it impedes our personal comfort. But James reminds us that even in the fast-paced, instantly gratified culture, that we should, in my Elizabeth English, let patience, has, let patience have its perfect work. The book of James is, has the highest construction of what we call imperatives. You know what they are. They're not suggestions. They're not sound advice, but they're commands and directives. He begins in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the Lord is testing your steadfastness. But before he closes his general epistle, he bookends it with another imperative in James 5, 7. He says, be patient. It's a compound word that he's using here. The word is Marco Rathomeo. Thank God that Pastor Larry's not here. He would correct me on that. But, but it's a compound word. It, it means large heat. So, so, so that's where we get the word thermometer from. It means, into, it means to preserve in situations that you don't like. It means persevere, persevere bravely and endure when you experience misfortune and troubles. Now keep in mind he's writing to the Jewish Christians in the first century that have found themselves dispersed all throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, 
because of severe persecution. He was writing around the time that theologians believed that, that Stephen had gotten stoned. So they found themselves in tremendous grief. Many of them were pushed away from lands that they had grown up on. No longer did their homes exist. No longer did their former lives exist anymore. But James is saying, in the midst of your difficulty, be patient. I want you to endure. And church, just like James's ancient audience, it's a directive for us to endure as well. He's, in, he's encouraging us to endure the perplexity, the pressure, the paradox, and the pain of life without grumbling. That's what he's suggesting. James doesn't simply stop there. He's, he, come, he gives us a time frame in which we're supposed to display patience. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's a beautiful, well, it's not beautiful. It's, it's tough. It's a tough word. What, what, what he's saying is, He's giving us a time frame. He's saying that patience is a disposition that we're going to have to possess until Jesus comes back. He's saying that there are, he's saying that we're just going to have to get used to being patient. But not only that, I think he gives us a time frame, but then he gives us a context or a few different contexts in which patience is necessary. Patience is necessary. When, let me give you the first one. It's dealing with some type of nuisance. Or a set of circumstances that really irritate you, right? Let me see if I can make that a little more Philly. Uh, uh, it, it, it's displaying patience with that coworker that's always gossiping and is nosy. The, the, yeah, you know, the, the one that you have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? The, the, the one that you've been praying gets transferred to another department? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neuroscientists say it like this. They say you have a hundred billion nerves in your body, and yet they know how to get on each and every one of them simultaneously. Yeah. James is saying, listen, I need you to be patient. I need you to endure. Let's, let's bring it a little bit more into the church context. He, he's saying we need to display patience, and we need to do this when someone always comes to life group and they hijack the time to talk about their problems. Let's keep it 100. You thought about not going to life group because you didn't want to hear the same problems over and over again. You didn't want to hear the same complaints. And on top of that, they don't even listen to advice when you give it to them. But James is saying, be patient. And Ernest Grant is saying, remember that you got on somebody's nerve before. Remember somebody was patient with you when you wanted to do all the talking in the group and wanted to teach. He's saying, be patient. That's one context when you're experiencing some, some, some nuisances, some set of circumstances that get on your nerves. But you also need patience when you're facing boredom. When you feel like you've fallen into a rut at your work life and in your home life and you feel like your life is uneventful. When you, feel, when you, when you scroll through the finely manicured IG and Facebook stories and you feel like your life is worthless and you feel like it's boredom, James is saying, be patient. When you feel like you're in a holding pattern in life, be patient. And if you're honest, a lot of us are upset with the type of life that we're living now. 
Because we never envisioned that our life would look like this. We thought that we'd be further along in our career by now. We thought we'd be married with children right now. We thought that things would work out. We thought we would move toward retirement by now, but we had to collapse the financial crisis in 2008, and it depleted all of our funds. And now we're like, God, what, is, what are you doing with this life? If you're deep down, if you're really, really honest, some of us are really, really upset with the life that we're living now. Because it's not the one that we envision for ourselves. But let me give you a little pain medicine. This is what you do. You go to the bathroom and you cry. And you mourn and you get upset and you tell God honestly about the emotions that you're experiencing. You, you cry about the losses. You cry about the things that you wanted. You cry about those desires that seem to hit the dead end. And after you finish, wipe your face and trust God for the life that you have now. Be a good steward. So he's saying, be patient. Because this light momentary affliction that you're experiencing can't be equated to the eternal weight of glory. Here's number three. Here's another context in which we have to show patience. The context that's probably the most serious is when you've been suffering. You've been suffering some incurable disease. Or you feel like your body is constantly ravaged in pain. You don't want to take the pain pills because you don't want to get addicted, but yet you're struggling in the morning because your body always hurts constantly ravaged or maybe you're battling depression silently and you've you're tired you're tired of telling of people telling you that it's others that are worse off than you or maybe you're tired of people telling you to stop feeling sorry for yourself or why don't you just come outside and get out of the house maybe you're tired of, or maybe you're not physically suffering in that regard maybe you're the primary caretaker of someone it's a loved one and it's been weighing on your body. Your life at the moment is like the, the last stanza of the Langston Hughes poem, Lonely Place. He writes, weary, weary, weary as can be. This life's so weary, it's about to overcome me. Maybe that's you today. But in the midst of your struggle, I want to remind you that you have a Savior that emphasizes, he, he empathizes with us. He empathizes with our struggle. He, he didn't stay safe in heaven as a distant deity. He, he didn't play it cool and remain with the Trinity and simply enjoy all the benefits and blessings. No, he decided to come down and become a man and become vulnerable on our behalf, even up to the cross. He subjected himself to the evil of this world. James Cone writes in the book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he's, he's talking about Dr. King and how Dr. King, connected, <clears throat> how Dr. King connected Jesus' catalog of suffering that culminated in the, cost, and he, in the cross. And he said that the cross and Jesus' suffering was done in loving solidarity with us who suffer. Jesus what knows what it's like. If you just think about the circumstances of his birth, he was born in a barn. He had no vaccines. He had no local hotel. He had no, he had no pristine health care. 
There was no midwife available for him. All there was was the stench of the animal's feces. If you think about when he was circumcised eight days later, his family offered two pigeons. That was prescribed for the very poorest of the class of people. He was at the bottom of the socioeconomic rung. In a town he was born in Nazareth, archaeologists say it was so poor that it was a little backwoods town that was ridden with filth. It was unpaved streets and there were open sewers. That's the context that Jesus was born in. Jesus wasn't poor like North Philly poor. He wasn't poor like Camden poor. He was like third world country poor. Jesus would have been one of the, the, the children on the feed the children that you send money to. So he knows what it's like. And even after that, he was a poor refugee. And he returned back to few educational opportunities. He was feared by his family. They thought he had lost his sanity. He was pursued by the stick. He was, he was stalked by the Pharisees. His whole life was a life of suffering. So when you endure your pain, I want you to know that you have a Savior that is deeply and intricately in tune with what you experience because he's experienced it. But if the cross and the resurrection teaches one thing, it teaches us that suffering doesn't have the final say. It teaches us that ultimately Christ will win. I remember when I was nine years old, my mother took me on my first airplane ride. We were headed to Disneyland and I was hyped. I was like, yeah, we about to go see Mickey, Minnie. I'm about to put the hat on, we going to Hollywood. Uh, but, but, but my mom did not feel like playing for, paying for a direct ticket. Uh, so we, 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 had a, we had a connecting flight. So before we went to Disneyland in LA, we had to stop in St. Louis. And I remember getting off the plane and I was like, why are we in St. Louis? Mom, I'm trying to go see Mickey and Minnie and go to ride on the rides and do, do my thing. I'm trying to enjoy it. Why are we here? She said, baby, I, I, I want you to just be focused on where you're going and not be so concerned with where you're at right now because where you're at right now is just temporary. In other words, what she was trying to say was, don't confuse your layover with your final destination. That, that, that's, that's what she was trying to say. And all I'm trying to tell somebody in here is, don't confuse your layovers in life with your final destination. See, your layover is many are the afflictions of the righteous. But your final destination is the Lord deliver them all. You got me? Your, your, your layover is many, is, is the enemy creeping in like a flood, but, but the final destination is God lifting up a standard for you. Your, your, your layover is weeping and during the night, but your final destination is, is joy coming in the morning. Uh, all I'm trying to tell somebody is you are having a struggle right now because you think you're going to be where you're at forever and Christ has something better planned. In the words of Tim Keller, he said it like this. He said, Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you on the cross of Calvary. And that's being cast away from God for eternity. 
And with this in view, James is saying, be patient. Just wait on it. Hold on. But there's another type of suffering that I, that I want to talk about. Uh, uh, before a lot of us, we're not suffering in those three type of circumstances. Our bodies aren't ravaged in pain in the morning time. We're, 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 that's not us. We're not providing care for someone that is incontinent. We're not, we're not struggling with some illness. No, this, this is what our struggle is with patience. We have huge aspirations. We have huge goals. We're ready for the platform. We're ready for the better paying job. We're ready for the new ministry endeavor, and it's just not happening quickly enough for us. We want the platform. We, we want the pedestal. We want the prestige. But first, in order for you to experience any of those things, you've got to submit to the process of patience. We say, yes, God, I want to walk in my purpose. Yes, Lord, I want to walk in the plan of God. But you name one person for me in the scriptures that God did something powerful with that didn't experience some real pain. In the words of Gardner C. Taylor, you can't experience the joy of Sunday's resurrection without experiencing Friday's crucifixion. Rarely does God do anything in people's lives without sending them through something first. Sending them some pain. Just look at the life of Joseph. Joseph was a little arrogant teen with a fly, Kuji sweater that his dad had made for him. <laughs> Y'all caught, catch that on the way home. He was an arrogant teen, and he had a dream that God was, that, his, that all of his family were going to bow down to him. Yeah, he was right, but not until he got thrown in the pit. Not until he got lied on and thrown in prison. Not before there was a famine in his homeland and he didn't think that he would see his family members first. He had to go through a process first. Think about David when he was anointed as king. Theologians say it was some 17 years between the time he was anointed as, as the king to the time that he actually took over the throne. And during that time, he was running for his life from cave to cave, trying to slip, dip, and dodge Saul that was after his life. God uses people that have gone through a process. My wife is Nigerian, praise the Lord for her. Any Nigerians in the house? No? Okay, few. Okay, cool, cool. She's Yoruba, so, you know, I, I, all I do at the house is eat those traditional African dishes. And it's wonderful. I eat a goosey soup, pounded yam, moi moi, puff puff, suya. Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about in here. It's all good. Maybe 11 o'clock will be with me. I eat all of that, right? But my favorite dish is a, is a dish called uh, jollof rice. I know it's, it's a little complicated, but it's really good. It's, it's, it's rice that, that is cooked in uh, tomato paste and blended hot peppers and onions. And then she cooks it so wonderfully. She hasn't done it a lot because she's almost uh, about to have the baby and she don't like being in the hot kitchen. Uh, but but she, when she cooks it, she always makes some seared goat meat next to it, some flavorful seasoned goat meat. So you take the goat meat, dip it in the rice, and it's like ecstasy that's going on in your mouth situation. Beautiful. 
Oh, I'm about to get it. I'm about to bring it in. I'm about to bring it in. Here we go. Here you go. Here you go. I, pro- I promise you I'm about to bring it in. But when she's in the kitchen cooking, when I come home, I don't go in there and bite the, the grains of rice that are uncooked. I, I, I don't try the, the tomato paste. I don't do that. I don't go and grab a pinch of the salt and pepper. Why? Because I know that they are just ingredients. And, that, and those ingredients have to be heated first. And they have to be stewed and boiled before they're ready. They have to go through a process before you get this wonderful, delectable dish of jollof rice. And all I'm trying to tell somebody in here is as you're in your process of, of maturity, while you're having patience, a lot of us think that we're this beautiful plate of jollof rice when we're really nothing more than uncooked goat meat. You, you ain't ready yet. All of the things that you're asking God to do, you just ain't there yet. You've got to be beaten and you've got to be agitated. If you think about how clothes are cleaned, they're thrown into the washing machine. And if you got an old school washing machine like me, it got that thing called an agitator. It's got to beat the clothes and, and shake them to get the dirt out. Then they have to be cast into the dryer. But that's not before... That's not before they go through the spin cycle. And some of us are just in the spin cycle of life. We're in the spin cycle. And I want to just tell you, in this sanctification process, there's another cleansing that's coming. So just while you're in this process, display patience. You're just not there just yet. God is working with you. Because if you try to force something, you'll be sorry. Because you'll make matters worse. In the words of Brian Loritz, the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had waited on God. So James tells us, you got to be patient. But then he gives us a visual description of what it looks like to be patient. He says, look at the farmer. Look what it says in verse 8. He says, uh, is that verse 8? Yeah, yeah, uh, 7b. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits and is patient until he receives it at the early and the late rains. Now, 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 the Jews that were scattered would have understood this illustration, right? They would have understood this analogy. They lived in an agrarian society, and farmers depended on the, the, the produce from the field in order to feed their families. So the early rains would happen in late October or the latter part of November. And then that signaled to the farmers that it was time to start plowing the field and throwing seed into the ground. And it's important that he throws the seed into the ground because from December to February, all you get is these heavy winds. And then you wait for the latter rain to happen in March or April, and that's what really matures the plants. But if the farmer doesn't get out there in the field, if he doesn't get out there and plow, if he doesn't get out there and throw the seeds, he won't have a harvest no matter how much of the rain comes. The farmer is defended upon the rain, but he's not sitting around idly. What am I trying to say? In other words, the farmer is teaching us that patience is not passive resignation. It's not sitting back waiting on God to do something. It's not just hoping that you do a little bit and that God is going to miraculously bring the results. 
No, it's taking your, your God-given skill and ability, discerning what responsibility you have, and believing God that by grace he is going to bless the work of your hand. But a lot of us are just not moving our feet to do anything, and we wonder why God is not blessing the work of our hand. Let me say this. Stop asking God to order your steps if you are unwilling to move your feet. We're moving in concert with God. We're watching and praying. We're watching and praying. But I think one of the issues is, is that we vocalize our goals too much. We talk about them too much. What happens when you talk about it is pro, what happens when you talk about it is sometime you actually convince yourself that you've accomplished them. You actually feel like you've done it. But we need to work and pray, work and pray. It's not just sitting around asking God to do something. One more observation about the farmer. He plows the field in October. But before then, he's not throwing seed in the ground. What he's doing is he's making sure that his plow is ready. He's making sure that he's cut a new gold for the field. He's making sure that the yoke that sits on the oxen is smooth. So that when the rain comes, he'll be prepared. But he's still working, but he realizes what portion, what type of work is appropriate for the specific season that he's in. All I'm trying to tell somebody is, somebody is like, God, I don't know why you're not breathing on my stuff. I don't know why you're not breathing on what I'm doing. Maybe it's because you have not properly assessed the season that you're in. Maybe the work that you're doing is the right work, but it's not the right time necessarily. And that's why we have to be in community groups. That's why we have to be in life groups. That's why we have to be accountable to each other and ultimately to Christ. Because others are able to assess our situation in different ways than we are. So look to the farmer. He recognizes the season that he's in. And finally, 10 minutes, okay. And finally, James says, Look to the prophets. Look to the prophets as a picture of patience. You could start with Ezekiel. Ezekiel was struggling with the unfaithfulness of God's people. And God said, oh, yeah, you're struggling? Okay, well, this is what I need you to do. I need you to strip down butt naked with no clothes and lay on your left side for 390 days. Patience. Look at Hosea. Hosea, the preacher, had just finished his MDiv, and he was trying to turn the people's heart to God. And God said, okay, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry one of them IG models. And then she's going to cheat on you and take advantage of you. And when she does, I want you to go back and, and work with her and accept her as your wife. When you're experiencing hurt and pain, I want you to bring her back in because that's going to model my relationship with Israel. Patience. And finally, he says, look to the goat of patience, who is Job, who went bankrupt, had all of his assets seized, and then he stood at the funeral with ten of his children in caskets. His wife said she was struggling with grief. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? And in a monumental statement, he said this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, 
And at the end, I will, he will stand upon the, church, the earth. Church, when you're suffering, when you're experiencing pain, we have to, when we get jaded by the experiences that we're going to, we have to be like Job because what he did was he didn't allow how he felt to trump what he knew of God. He knew God was merciful. He knew God was kind. And ultimately, we know that God is merciful. We know that God is kind because he exhibited it in his son, Jesus Christ. He exhibited that while we were yet sinners, still living a, a morally reprehensible life, that Jesus came and died on the cross for us. Because he knew that we couldn't live up to this high lofty standard. He came down, condescended, and died for us. My little daughter is almost two years old. She's very, very independent. Yeah, very independent. She likes to do her thing. I mean, she just tears up the house. One day I asked her, I said, are, are you being raised by wolves? Who's, ra who's raising you? And she looked me in my face. She said, ow. That didn't really happen, but you know, yeah. It was a good, can't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? right? <laughs> but one day I'm there, I'm giving her a bath. And as customary, I take my washing rag, I get the soap, and I lather it, and I get down and I give her a bath. She decided that she was going to take the rag out of my hand. And she wanted to clean herself. I was a bit amused by that. I let her, she started to wipe herself down, and after a few moments, I realized that she had missed some spots. Ultimately, her level of hygiene didn't match my level. So what I did was, though I was clean, though I wasn't dirty, I put my clean hands into the dirty water. I grabbed the rag, I knelt down by the tub, and I began to wash her down so that she wouldn't be made clean, even though I had to become dirty. And church, as I think about our Lord Jesus, how he left his prerogatives in heaven, he saw that we had drawn a bath of iniquity. He saw that we were living in a tub of sin, and rather than stay in his heavenly abode, he condescended down next to us. And on the cross, he cleaned us. On the cross, he wiped us down, and then he resurrected vindicatively for the glory of God. So I want to encourage you today. I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't necessarily know what you're going through. But be patient. We don't have a full picture of what God is doing yet. So be patient. But know that all this is working together for our good and for his glory. Father, we thank you for the abundance of your mercy.